Hey y'all, and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren, and this is week seven of our study, By His Grace, For His Glory, an inductive study of the book of Romans. I have studied Romans before, but this time around, I continue to be in awe of the character of God. Last week, we talked about how reconciliation between humans and little g-gods were always initiated and carried out by the human. A god would never initiate reconciliation, much less carry it out at the expense of himself. But our god, the great god, the god who is above all gods, not only initiated that reconciliation, he himself was the sacrifice. If you want more information on this study, you can go to feastingontruth.com slash Bible study. This week, Paul is continuing to give us this picture of what our life in Christ looks like and what a good master our God is. Here's Romans chapter six. Welcome to week seven of By His Grace, For His Glory, an inductive study on the book of Romans. And today we are in Romans chapter six. Um, Before I jump in, let's open in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Lord, I just thank you for the God that you are. Lord, the God that came near, the God that did not... um, want heaven without us, Lord, that wanted you to be able to dwell in our midst and so that you made a way to do that. God, thank you for the life that we have in you, that we are alive, no longer dead. And I just pray, Lord, as we study through Romans 6, Lord, that you would um, keep watch over my words. May they be your truth, Lord. Um, May I be the conduit of what you have to say, and may um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of your my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, let your word fall and let it do what it does in us. Um, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. So I um, always want us to review as we are studying Romans, because context is super important, um, but I am finding it even more so. And as we get deeper and deeper into the book, it's important for us to remember the context of the whole study, because we um, sometimes as we get further into our study and further into a book, um, sometimes we can kind of forget what happened earlier. And so all of this is kind of building up. And because Romans is such a long letter, um, I always want us to kind of go back and remember what Paul has already um, said in the first five chapters. So um, remember that Paul is writing um, this letter to the church in Rome. It is a church that is made up of, uh, of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Um, and that they were experiencing some ethnic um, differences. And so Paul is writing a letter to bring unity, even in their diversity, um, to kind of reset the foundation for what um, it means to follow Jesus. And so we have um, the first four chapters are the first section. There's four sections within the book of Romans in the first four books, or first four chapters are the first section. Um, This is kind of displaying God's righteousness versus our need for a savior. And um, he spends the first two and a half chapters kind of addressing the sin that is in historical sin of 
the um, both sides of the Jewish and the Gentile sides of the church. Um, he's not necessarily addressing specific sin. He's saying, this is where you are without Christ. And then in chapter three, we have those glorious two words, but now, and he gives one of the most comprehensive condensed um, explanations of the gospel. And so he, he writes with this idea that we are common in our sin and common in our salvation. And he closes out that first section using um, the story of Abraham and showing how God is creating a new spiritual family, that it's no longer about your heritage or the family you're born into, but the choice that you make um, toward faith, not by works but or birth, but by faith. And so last week we moved into the second section which is um, focusing on our lives because of Christ. So we kind of had our lives before Christ in the first section. Now it's here's where we are on this side of the cross. Um, and in chapter five, um, Paul talked about how we were enemies with God. Remember all those words he used kind of showing how we were against God. Um, but now because of Jesus, we have peace with God, that we are no longer at war with him. Um, and because of that, we have access to his grace. Um, and while sin and condemnation and death came through Adam, um, righteousness, justification, and life come through Jesus and through faith in him. Um, there was a comparison of Adam and Jesus, kind of the, the, the old humanity and the new humanity that we have in Jesus. And, he, and Paul, as we move into chapter six, is going to kind of um, break that down a little further and kind of talk about our lives because of um, our lives as old self and new self. Um, and I specifically want to kind of call attention to Romans 5.20. Um, where Paul said, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that's basically what he has just said. And we've seen Paul with this pattern where he kind of is anticipating objections. Remember, this is a letter that he is writing. And so as he's writing it, he's like, you know, I could probably, I, my guess is somebody's going to find, be like, well, then what about this? And so he's kind of anticipating some of those arguments. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter six, um, verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I love it, y'all. It's back. Um, <laughs> it's like my favorite one to listen to in a British accent when you're listening to the Bible. By no means. Um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Jesus Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who, um, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So we see this objection. Okay, well, if, you know, sin increased and grace abounded all the more, so shouldn't we just 
continue sinning so that grace would abound more. And he's like, no, not at all. That is not at all. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he gives this example of baptism. Um, I want to give you a little bit of context on baptism um, because I think, especially this side of the cross, especially in um, Western civilization um, and in the 21st century that yes, that's right, 21st century that we are living in, that we um, we have this picture of baptism is like this, because for us, um, for most of us, we are saved, and then baptism is the symbol um, that we partook of, um, but I want us to understand a little bit more about where baptism came from. So baptism um, was not a foreign concept um, to um, the Jewish people. Anyone, any Gentile who converted to Judaism was baptized, and it was a symbol of washing away their impurity. Um, so, um, but it was historically not something that Jewish people partook of. So, when you're reading the Gospels and you see John the Baptist baptizing people, um, Jewish people, it was scandalous because. Um, the IVP Bible background commentary says that when John the Baptist was baptizing Jewish people, it was as if, um, it was like saying they were pagans. And so this idea of, of baptism and being baptized as Christians was something that was kind of a shift and new. Um, so I, I want us to kind of have a little bit of that background of understanding um, where it came from so that we can understand a little bit more of what it represents. Um, I think we think of it as the washing and the new and the, the dying and the, and the raising to life, but um, I want us to really sit and, and what Paul is saying here, um, because he's saying that our baptism represents more than just washing away of our sins. Our baptism um, represents us dying and being buried like Christ and being resurrected to new life. So going under the water is a symbol of death and burial to our old life. And then we are raised to new life where we are no longer slaves to sin. Um, and just as Jesus was raised by the glory of the Father, here it says, again, it is by God's power that we ourselves are raised to walk in the newness of life. Um, I loved that phrase, the newness of life. The Greek word for newness is derived from a word that means fresh or new. Think like a renewal. And so when we are baptized, it is a symbol to the world that we are no longer belong to sin, but that we now belong to Christ, that we have been renewed and covered. We have been set free. Um, in your Bible, there may have been a footnote on verse seven, where it says free, also saying that um, it means justified. So we have been justified um, through, um, um, we have been justified which means we're made righteous. 
Um, I heard somebody recently talking about this and they use this phrase to help understand justified is just as if I had never sinned. And I love that thought because that is what it means for us to have be covered by the righteousness of Christ. It is a renewal. It is, is a new life. Um, you know, we talked a couple weeks back about um, in Luke where um, the rich young ruler was asking Jesus what it took to be saved. And he walked away sad because he wasn't satisfied with the answer. It wasn't the answer he wanted. And um, Jesus said, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And the people look at him and they go, well, then how can anyone be saved? Um, because it just seems impossible. And what God and what Jesus says, he goes, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This resurrection that we get to experience because of our faith in him is only possible with God. Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and trusting us the message and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Um, I love hearing it put this way. God didn't come, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make the dead alive. Um, we now get to experience a newness of life because of him. And this is our new reality. And so we're going to see a transitional word here in verse eight. Now, now this is who you are because of Jesus. You have been dead. You have been buried with him and raised to newness of life. Verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Man, y'all, I just, I'm so blown away by what we have because of Jesus. We were dead in our sin, but we have been raised to life. And because of that death, sin has no dominion over us. It has no power over us. It does not rule us. We have been freed. First um, Peter 2.16 tells us, it implores us that to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
we this is the argument that Paul here in Romans is working against this idea that well we're free and we're covered by grace so I, it's okay if I sin and we have this tension that we have to live in um but we no longer should present ourselves as sinful because we are covered by his righteousness. He is the resurrection and the life. And we are living, walking, breathing examples of his resurrection power. John 11, 25 through 26, Jesus is talking to Martha um, as um, they are mourning the death of Lazarus. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We get to experience eternal life because of the resurrection power that we experience in our lives. Um, and because of that, we should not let sin have its way in our body and in our actions. If you'll remember back in Romans 3, 10 through 18, there was a quick fire list of all these Old Testament passages. And each one focused on a different body part. And it kind of gave this idea that um, we are sinful from head to toe. And now Paul is saying Despite that, but now because of Christ and because we have been resurrected to new life in him, we should not allow ourselves any parts of our body to be given over to sin. Um, our tongue, our eyes, the paths of our feet no longer should be controlled by sin because those parts, our bodies are no longer subject to the power of sin over us. We are dead to sin, and that means that the desire to sin and the passions of sin should no longer affect us. Now, I know that we are living in this tension of the already, but the not yet, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit, um, but I want us to remember that. I want us to keep that picture that we have died to sin and that we have been raised to new life in him, that his resurrection power um, is over us. And therefore, because of that, we should not present ourselves um, and, and use our bodies, our minds, our tongues to do sin anymore. Um, Matthew Henry said, no man can at the same time be both dead and alive. He is a fool who desiring to be dead unto sin thinks that he may live in it. Once we have come to faith in Jesus, we are alive and we should no longer desire to live in our dead old state. Um, and this nullifies the statement. Well, this is just how God made me. You know, I'm always going to struggle with this sin. I'm always going to struggle with fear. I'm always going to struggle with pride. I'm always going to um, struggle with anger or addiction. Whatever the sin is that entangles you, it does not have dominion over you. Do not allow it to have the final word. Um, another quote from the IVP Bible background commentary said, one should embrace one's identity in terms of one's destiny with Christ, not one's past in Adam. We see this comparison of what our humanity, what our flesh, what our life looked like before Christ but now what we have in Jesus, we should focus on our destiny in Christ, 
not our past in Adam. Um, we, I need to hold, like I said, that truth, that tension between grace and truth, the already, but the not yet. We have grace that covers us. We are justified. We are made righteous, but, and so we have that grace that covers us. But at the same time, we also need to hold the truth that we are sinners in progress. And that's what Paul is going to move into next as we move further into this argument. Um, but before I keep reading, I want to pause here and kind of give some um, cultural context um, that'll help us as we read. Because over the next couple chapters, we're going to see Paul use some real world um, examples to kind of help explain a spiritual concept. So very similar to what we saw in Romans 1 and 2, where we said they were not necessarily sins that he was specifically addressing in the church. Um, he is merely kind of giving a picture of what our life is without um, without uh, without Christ. So in here, he is going to give some real world ex real world examples to kind of imperfectly give a, a an understanding of a bigger spiritual concept. So this is not a um, a message or or verses on that are for slavery. Okay. Um, and the same is what we're going to see at the beginning of chapter seven, where he talks about divorce. Um, these are verses we could very easily pick up in this and, and pull them out of context and make it sound like it's something else. But what he's actually doing is trying to use a different concept. And particularly when we are talking about slavery in scripture, we need to understand um, that this is not the same type of slavery that we saw in American history. Um, the ESV Bible pref, um, preface, preface, <laughs> words are hard, y'all. Um, the ESV Bible preface calls it the brutal and dehumanizing institution. That is what took place in um, American history. But slavery in the ancient world was very different. Um, and many versions, such as the ESV, attempt to use varying words in English to kind of best describe the situation. Um, and so here's what's important for us to know is that people could choose to enter slavery within um, in the ancient world. So during this time when this letter was written, people who were slaves were not necessarily, um, it was not the same situation. They could choose to be slaves either to pay off a debt, um, to help get them out of poverty, um, they could sometimes be forced into slavery as punishment for a crime or if they were born into it. Um, and so there's a couple different words within to kind of describe what varying different kind of levels of, um, of slavery were. Um, it is the um, Greek word doulos and it's used throughout the New Testament and it covers a wide range of types of slavery and servitude. So sometimes it references what was called a bond servant. This is someone who had a seven year contract um, in most cases um, and they would serve willingly until the end of their contract and then they were given their wages that were due. So um, so it was that was one that was usually more voluntary. Um, a servant kind of covers a lot of various different situations, but here um, Bible translators chose to use the word slave because it implies absolute ownership. 
And so that's what I want us to have this picture of. Um, and I want us to also remember this doesn't necessarily mean that there is um, oppression and brutality and dehumanizing um, acts as slaves. Um, there were actually laws in the Mosaic law that provided and protected slaves. Um, and there certainly were cases we see in Exodus 1, the, the brutality that, of how the um, Egyptians treated the Israelites. But within the Jewish um, community, there was protection provided for them. Um, so I want us to keep that phrase, though, in our mind as we read this, because slavery implies absolute ownership, okay? Absolute ownership. So let's keep reading and see the difference between two masters. Ch uh, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation, limitations for just as you were once presented, you once pre presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification in its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the gift the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord <laughs> so this section of scripture is a great place for a chart <laughs> because Paul says um, throughout honestly most of chapter six and we're going to see again next week in chapter seven he says the same thing over and over in lots of different ways and so um, this is a great place where we can um, create a chart about what we get in sin and what we get in Christ. So um, sin makes you an instrument of unrighteousness. Um, it keeps you under the law. It leads to death. It leads to impurity. Sin leads to more sin. There is no fruit. It brings shame. And the wages, what we get, what we um, deserve, what we work for is death. But in Christ, this is how our life is. It makes you an instru instrument for righteousness. You are under grace. Obedience leads to righteousness, leads to sanctification, freedom from sin. There you bear fruit and ultimately you get the gift of eternal life. It is not something we earn. It is something that is given to us. 
we will obey a master. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's using this illustration to say, there are two options. There are two masters and you will obey one or the other. Um, we, my husband and I often talk about what we call the illusion of control, that we think we control a lot more than we actually do. And I think I see that here, that we have this, um, we think we control more than we do, but we will either obey our sinful passions or we will obey our holy God. Those are our two options. I really want to kind of hone in and focus in on verse 19. Um, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity into lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as righteousness, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Um, You had two definitions to look up this week. And the first one was sin. Um, Merriam-Webster defines sin as an offense against a religious or moral law. So it's doing something that is against a a set of law. Um, But I love, y'all, I love the Greek word definition. It means to miss the mark. Um, um, And and here's what's fascinating about it, is that it's self-originated. That means nobody else made you miss the mark. You weren't really close and somebody like hit your arm and made you shoot your arrow off somewhere else. No, we miss the mark on our own. There's nothing we can do to hit the mark. We are sinful. Um, There is a standard that is set by the creator of the universe and our holy God. um, And it is not because he's mean. It's because he knows that our very best lies within these boundaries. And he knows that only within those boundaries are we able to experience the fullness of life in his presence, but we miss the mark. When we sin, when we choose to act in a way that is outside of those boundaries, we are saying, God, I know better. We're saying, God, you're holding out on me. And we choose and say that we know better. And we are essentially saying, God, I'm God. I don't need you. And we miss the mark. And it pulls us deeper and deeper into sin. Sin leads to more sin. Um, But Jesus, y'all, we are no longer slaves to sin and death when we put our faith in him. They do not have dominion over us. They do not get a say in how we live or our destiny in Christ. As slaves to righteousness, we now get to experience this beautiful process called sanctification. And this was your other definition this week. Um, Merriam-Webster defines it as to be set apart for a sacred purpose um, or to be free from sin. Um, The Greek word is the process of making and becoming holy, set apart, sanctification, holiness, consecration. So. I want us to think about, we are covered with his righteousness. We are justified just as if I had never sinned. However, we still live on earth and we still live in this already, but not yet where we have been saved. We have been justified, but we have not been ultimately glorified where we will be in our perfection in the presence of God. And in this process in between, we take part in what is called sanctification. Um, It is 
the process of removing impurities from our lives, our behavior and our thoughts. It's overcoming sin in our lives. We don't sit around and be like, covered by grace, doesn't matter what I do. It does matter. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you ever want to know what God's will is for your life, it's sanctification. It's that we would look more like Jesus, um, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Sanctification is this process of becoming more like Jesus. That's the churchy way that we often say it. Um, we've talked about this, how sin separates us from God. Um, and so we are close to sin and far from God, but because of Jesus, he opened the way that allows us to draw near to God. And so because of that, we are able to separate from sin and be closer to God. And so part of our process here is our sanctification. It is removing those impurities from our life. It is understanding our places of sin and conquering and moving forward and growing with Jesus. Um, I will tell you that for me, I think one of the most sanctifying works that I, um, where God reveals sin to me is in my study time in the word. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. God's word, the truth of God's word is what helps us separate from who we were and move toward who God wants us to be. Um, and we don't do this with devotional lifestyle. We don't do this by picking and choosing small verses. We do this by coming to God's word firsthand, by studying deep, deeply, by asking the right questions of scripture. And I think foremost, it is asking that question, what does this say about God? Because nothing has made me want to throw off my sin more than when I catch a glimpse of who my God is. Um, I want to walk in obedience. I don't want to continue in my sin when I understand how great and mighty and holy and gracious and good my God is. These are our two masters. We can choose to continue on the path of death or we can choose to follow him. He is not a harsh, mean master. Um, he is Adonai. He is the Lord of Lord and Lords and the King of Kings. He is not like any other God because he's the one who initiated the reconciliation. He's the one that frees us from the dominion of sin and death. First Peter 2, 20 
4 through 25 says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he references that passage in Isaiah, by his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like a sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is the good shepherd. That's the kind of master he is. And the sheep follow him because they know the voice of their shepherd. When we know his word, we will follow him. And he is the good shepherd, the one who takes care of his sheep, who steadfastly loves us. Hebrews 7, 22 through 28 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is eternal. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear the language? To draw near. Um, if you'll remember, if you've done the um, the Feasting on Truth study to dwell in our midst. It's a study of the tabernacle um, and how it points us to Jesus. Remember that they could not draw near to God, that his presence was closed off. But because of Jesus, we get to do so with confidence. The priest made intercession for the people, but Jesus makes a better intercession. And y'all get this. You know what the Greek word intercession means? It means to hit the mark. It means to intersect. We miss the mark, but he hit it for us. Here's what I have found so profound this time around studying in Romans 6, because I think we often talk about this, like we are standing at a crossroads and we can either choose the path of death or we can choose the path of life. We can choose to walk the, the way of the flesh, or we can choose to um, allow, uh, to follow Jesus and walk on the path of eternal life. But here's the reality. We were born walking the life, the path of death. We were born sinful. We were born on this path that was constantly missing the mark. And we could not hit the mark on our own, no matter what we did. And Jesus intersected us on that path and hit the mark on our behalf. He did what we could not do. We missed the mark, but he hit it for us. He lived that perfect life. He died and he was raised to new life. And so the same way we no longer belong to sin. We no longer have, um, sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has absolute ownership over our souls. Instead, because of the intersection of intercession of Jesus, we are able to now draw near to him. We were dead, but now we are raised to new life. We are alive in him. We were separated. Um, we were separated from God and, and left in our sin, but he came 
and he moved us and separated us from our sin and brought us near to God, our Adonai, our Lord Master, who is good and faithful and merciful and full of grace and truth and righteous and the one who gives life and the one who intercedes on our behalf. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you came running. Lord, thank you that you um, made a way so that we could dwell with you and you could dwell in our midst. Lord, thank you that um, because of Jesus, because of his perfect life, Lord, that he hit the mark on our behalf, that he intersected and, and pulled us from the path of death that we were walking and brought us into the path of life. Lord, thank you for your righteousness that covers us. Thank you that you sanctify us and draw us closer to who you are. Lord, I pray that as we go through this week, Lord, that we would continue to walk in that newness of life, that we would not allow sin to have dominion or try to tell us how to live, but God, that we would trust your voice and follow you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Y'all, sin is a poor master. It always overpromises and underdelivers. The enemy is a deceiver and shame is his game, but not our God. God moves with us. He guides us. He shepherds our hearts. And as one of my friends says, knowing him changes your heart. One of the girls in my small group put it this way, the longer you walk with God, your taste buds change. You lose your taste for what used to temporarily satisfy you from the world. And instead, you find deep satisfaction um, that your soul so desires in God alone. I want to close by reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. It was also written by Paul, and these verses so perfectly sum up Romans chapter 6. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were on the path of sin, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transpasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. I'll see you next week.